Blog Talk Radio.
another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, today is Saturday, April 16th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Uh, later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the impact of massive flooding in the KwaZulu-Natal uh, province of the Republic of South Africa, where nearly 400 people have been reportedly uh, killed in the floods. A vessel carrying migrants has capsized off the coast of Libya, leading to numerous deaths. We'll have details on that as well. An oil tanker near the southeastern coast of Tunisia has been damaged, and Ethiopian and Eritrean residents of the United States are protesting against sanctions leveled at the governments of Addis Ababa and Asmara by the United States administration of President Joe Biden. In the second hour, we listen to uh, in-depth news on the situation around Durban in South Africa, where heavy rains have created a humanitarian crisis. Finally, we listened to a press briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Director General Dr. John Nkangasone uh, broadcasting from uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with Tony Allen uh, from the West African state of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. This is taken from the album entitled Black Voices. Let's listen in.
Thank you. 
music of uh, Tony Allen uh, from uh, the West African state of Nigeria, former drummer for uh, Fela Adelapo Kuti. And uh, that uh, album by Tony Allen was entitled Black Voices. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday. April 16th, uh, 2022, uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the current humanitarian crisis in the Republic of South Africa, uh, where a flood uh, has left many people homeless and reportedly uh, nearly 400 dead. Uh, Police, army, and volunteer rescuers Widened on yesterday, uh, the search for dozens uh, that are still missing, five days after the deadliest storm to strike South Africa's coastal city of Durban in living memory as the death toll rose to nearly 400. One week after unprecedented rainfall struck the South African province of KwaZulu-Natal, now is the time for grieving. Uh, Flood survivors learn every day that they have lost a sister, a father, a mother, or children in the city of Durban and its surrounding. Nearly 400 bodies have been retrieved. However, the number of people unaccounted for is still being tallied. Uh, South Africa's second most populous province has lost 4,000 of its homes to landslips, mudslides, and floods. Uh, More than 13,000 others have been damaged. Rescue operation teams and families look for answers where there used to be homes. For many, like uh, Musudi Shandu, uh, the horrendous sight is still surreal. I thought it was a dream. Maybe someone would pinch me and say it was a dream. Just wake up. But when I see all the rescuers and the dogs searching for their bodies, I don't know what to believe anymore. Through the sandy soil, volunteers spare no pains. Uh, they work relentlessly under the eyes of flood victims, sometimes hopeful, sometimes hopeless. Indeed, the impassable ruins make it more difficult for dogs to pick up a scent. And the South African Weather Service has issued an Easter weekend warning of thunderstorms and flooding. Tumasani Kanyili, uh, a resident, is not optimistic. Uh, he said, we have The rescue team finally has reached here, uh, but seeing the rain that is coming back, they are going to be disrupted by the rain, and then there won't be any search uh, going further. The Army is helping with rescue operations, and organizations like Rescue South Africa have also sent on site scores of volunteers. A fleet of cars and helicopters carrying police experts uh, combed through a valley in western Durban yesterday. In a race against time, the desperate search for survivors continues. Over 4,000 police officers have been deployed to help with relief efforts and maintain law and order amid uh, threats of sporadic looting. Uh, The floods affected nearly 41,000 and left a trail of destruction. President Ramaphosa declared the region a state of disaster to unlock relief funds. In other news, uh, a migrant boat has capsized off the Libyan coast, leaving at least 35 people dead or presumed dead. Uh, The United Nations Migration Agency said this earlier today. It was the second tragedy in less than a week involving migrants departing from North Africa to seek what they believe will be a better life in Europe. Uh, The shipwreck took place 
yesterday off the western Libyan city of Sabrata, a major launching port for the mainly African migrants making a dangerous voyage across the Mediterranean, said the International Organization for Migration. The IOM said the bodies of six migrants were pulled out while 29 others were missing and presumed dead. It was not immediately clear what caused the wooden boat to capsize. Uh, Friday's tragedy was the second shipwreck off Libya in less than a week, with a total of at least 53 Europe-headed migrants dead or presumed dead, according to the IOM. On Tuesday, a wooden boat carrying at least 20 migrants capsized off the western town of Sorman. Two migrants were rescued, and at least 18 were pronounced dead with six bodies, bodies retrieved. Uh, the UN Migration Agency noted dedicated search and rescue capacity and a safe disembarkation mechanism are urgently needed to prevent further deaths and suffering. That's according to the International Organization for Migration. Investigators commissioned by the United Nations top human rights body found evidence of possible crimes against humanity committed in Libya against migrants detained in government-run prisons and at the hands of human traffickers. Earlier this month, uh, more than 90 people in an overcrowded boat drowned in the Mediterranean Sea days after they left Libya, according to the Doctors Without Borders aid group. Migrants regularly tried to cross the Mediterranean from Libya in a desperate attempt to reach European shores. The country has emerged as the dominant transit point for migrants fleeing war and poverty in Africa and the Middle East. Human traffickers in recent years have benefited from the chaos in Libya and the aftermath of the counter-revolution uh, that was engineered by the Pentagon and NATO, along with the Central Intelligence Agency, 11 years ago. <clears throat> there has been the smuggling of migrants across the oil-rich North African country, uh, and also there are lengthy borders uh, with six different nations. The migrants are then typically packed into ill-equipped rubber boats and set off on a risky sea voyage. At least 476 migrants died along the central Mediterranean route between January the 1st and April 11th, according to the IOM. Many of those who have been intercepted and returned to Libya, including women and children, are held in government-run detention centers where they suffer from abuse, including torture, rape, and extortion, according uh, to rights organizations. Are you listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal? In Tunisia, a commercial oil tanker carrying more than 750 tons of diesel ran aground overnight on Friday to earlier today in the Gulf of Gabiz in southeastern Tunisia. According to the Environmental Ministry, the ship sank late Saturday morning due to water seeping into the engine room. Only the bow of the boat was still visible. It's unclear if it is leaking fuel. As soon as the accident was announced on Friday night, the Environment Ministry announced the activation of the National Emergency Response Plan put in place over the potential threat of the maritime pollution. That consists of experts, marine guards, and civil protection agents being deployed to the danger zone and buffers such as the tarpaulin put around the perimeter to contain any leak. The shallow, which was flying the flag of Equatorial Guinea, had left the port of Dimiata in Egypt heading for Malta, uh, but was diverted from its route due to a bad weather condition. The crew was saved by teams from the Maritime Guard and Civil Protection. 
And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to the proposed United States sanctions against the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, Ethiopians at home and in the diaspora should not take the suspension of the H.R. 6600 and S. 3199 as an unaudible measure and would rather make more push to the cancellation of the malicious bills, the Ethiopian American Citizens Council said in an appeal. Now, speaking to local media, the council's media director, Sayum Hadebo, said Ethiopians should never be distracted by the suspension of the resolutions. Instead, they should work to remove them. Through the bill, though the bill has gone down from the 8th to the 336th agenda level, it should be taken into consideration that the suspension will not only help us to perform more activities wisely, but also avail the opportunity to the imitators to persuade their fellow lawmakers and to get their vote. The Yom further highlighted that some U.S. legislators might also use the situation to twist the Ethiopian government's arm to fulfill their ill-intended needs. To this effect, Ethiopians should continue their struggle until the bill is completely withdrawn. Ethiopian diasporans uh, residing in the United States should capitalize on the November elections to inform their home country's reality among the nominees. Various activities have been carried out to ensure the participation of Ethiopians at grassroots levels to this end. Also, the Council has done meticulous work to encourage diasporan Ethiopians in the U.S. to approach their representatives and inform the latter about Ethiopia's objective reality. Misrepresenting Ethiopia's reality would not benefit the Biden administration. Rather, it would push the former stick with other countries that are pursuing different policies from the United States as an American citizen. We're letting them know our concerns. As to him, the council tried to make sure activities it had undertaken would not harm the 120 years diplomatic relations between Ethiopia and the United States, we are cautious of each of our moves. Though the suspension has some advantages in permitting Ethiopians to execute more activities, they should continue putting their efforts so that the bill would be removed, he emphasized. And of course, um, Ethiopian and uh, Eritrean Americans have been demonstrating for the last several months against uh, the attacks leveled on them uh, by uh, the administration of President Joe Biden. With that, uh, we're going to end uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, and research reports, as well as blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Journal uh, so you can stay abreast, of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's to listen to the Pan-African Journal. But if you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, 
just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you want to listen to uh, this edition and, of course, uh, well over 1,100 other episodes uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. All of these programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, um, blogs and websites, as well as social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for uh, this week. Somebody do. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the music of uh, Mr. Chester Arthur Burnett, uh, better known as Howlin' Wolf. And, of course, uh, we're here on uh, Saturday, April 16th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And right now we want to move into a detailed report on uh, the current humanitarian situation around Durban in the Republic of South Africa. And, of course, uh, this is from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, The segment also includes uh, information on the recent uh, attacks on Palestinians in uh, Jerusalem uh, in association uh, with the Al-Aqsa Mosque, as well as other stories. Uh, Let's listen in. Hello and welcome live from our studios in Auckland Park, Johannesburg. This is the Week in Review, of course, the program where we review some of the big stories to come out of the week. Let's look at headlines, what's kept South Africans talking. As always, I'm your host, Cecil Wilson. Let's get straight into your headlines. President Natal Cooperative Governance Department has cautioned residents to avoid low-lying areas as rains resume in most parts of the province. The National Institute for Communicable Diseases has recorded 1,846 new COVID-19 infections. And further field in the Middle East, Palestinians clash with Israeli security forces at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque. Right, let's look at your headlines. Let's get into some of the stories we're reviewing today. In fact, it continues as a developing story where search and rescue teams have begun combining, uh, combing rather through Matikwe, Umzinyati and Pola rivers in Inanda area, which is just north of Durban, in efforts to retrieve seven bodies. The team consists of police divers, K-9 units investigating seven cases of missing persons believed to have drowned in the rivers when their shacks were washed away by raging floods on Monday night. Busi Kumalo and camera, uh, camera person Sputembe on the scene. The search and rescue teams are here at Inanda area uh, at the polar section uh, to investigate the cases of seven uh, people or bodies uh, who may still be trapped in some of the logs and trees as well as the river that cuts through uh, this community of Mzinyati. That's an area that's uh, on, on, on Ward 103 uh, from Etewini, uh, local Etewini uh, municipality. With me is one of the family members, a family member who has apparently lost uh, seven uh, or ten uh, family members uh, during the floods in the province of KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, 
Now, that's a brave move to make to say, please, can you give us help? And they called the Western Cape Disaster Risk Management came in. And, of course, we have very good relationships with them because Western Cape has fires, you know, all the time. And we work with them. And part of the team members, also part of Gift of the Givers team members, they travel with us. So they came down and they said, call us and said, can you join us? So we said, certainly we will. And so we brought our teams down and some of them are still on the way from other parts of the country. The command center is set up now in Virginia Airport in Devon. From there, it will be proper coordination to go to the different areas. But what we do require is from those media houses, local and international, and even from public people who have been in different areas, if they can send us a message and say, you know what, this, this is the area where we, we last were, and there was uh, somebody missing here, or somebody drowned here, or somebody spot up in, in a building, if we can get that kind of information, it helps us very much to get to the areas much faster and do recovery faster. All information that comes to us makes lives much easier and we can get to the area much faster. But that's the whole issue. We need to get feedback from the public. And we know in Inanda, as the gentleman mentioned it, this actually started off because one of my team members was in Inanda. And he said he saw the people sitting on the side of the river. And he asked them, what are you doing there? You know, it's not safe, it's risky. So they said we're waiting for the bodies of our relatives to flow down so we can catch them and give them a decent burial. And when we started getting, and then we got another message from Reservoir Hills. And the lady said, we are in Ender Drive. There's, there's a family in Ender Drive. Two children are missing. There's not enough people to come and help. Can anybody help? We're helping dig, but it's very, very difficult. There's two missing children in this area. Can you help? Some of the messages came from other areas, which made it very, very clear that emergency services can't cope. Not their own fault, not their fault, but because the volume of people affected is too much. So to save time, you don't start digging and searching in water. It takes a long time. So that's why I say, if people have an idea and say, look, in my area, in Inanda, in Amlazi, in Kwamashu, in Red Hill, in Effingham, wherever, Chatsworth, Phoenix, Svetalam, Tonga, somebody disappeared here. Please, can you come here? Some, the building fell on somebody, and they're in the building. We can get a decomposition smell, or they got washed away in the water here, so we know where to look. If you do that, we'll save a lot of time and try to, together with all the skins combined, try to get back as many people, as recover as many bodies as possible, so people can have closure. All right. For more on the floods in KwaZulu-Natal, let us bring in our reporter, Nozintombi Mia, who is standing by for us in Marion Hill. A very good afternoon to you, Nozintombi. Thank you for joining us. Perhaps walk us through, you know, what you can tell us about the recent developments with regards to the amount of damage that has been assessed in the area as we speak. Yeah, you're quite right, uh, Liesl. It's really starting to come down in earnest. You've had to... Uh, change into a raincoat just to be able uh, to get our feet on the ground and continue speaking to the residents that are affected. Uh, we were uh, in a certain section of uh, Marion Hill uh, where the mountain had, had basically collapsed on uh, some of the houses and then we moved further up to uh, a higher part of the ridge of Marion Hill where uh, houses were completely destructed. And now, Lisa, I just want to give you an idea of what exactly is happening right now. Uh, we are following a convoy that consists of the, uh, uh, the Zulu uh, King as well as uh, the Premier as well as the Motipe Foundation because we do know that they are doing uh, further, they are visiting some of the families uh, whose members died in the flooding. 
but you know the sense that we're getting is that uh, communities are feeling a bit frustrated that you know a week after the initial uh, flooding uh, initial rainfall there still does not seem to be a lot of action happening and instead it just seems to be convoys on convoys on convoys with site inspections and, you know the sense we're getting on the ground from communities is that you know, they understand that government is taking stock. They understand that there are multiple um, different organizations that are involved in assessing the situation. But what they're calling for, basic things, they're calling for provincial government to set up stations where they can get access to basic things like uh, warm soup, bread, access to blankets that they can be able to cover themselves overnight. I mean, you can see that it is, it is, it's, it's pouring down with rain. Um, we're standing literally at the mercy of the elements. But in as much as we're standing in the mercy of elements and moving from location to location, these are people who are, who are anchored here, who are stuck here, who feel that they are hemmed in and they have nowhere to go. Their houses are, are collapsed or their houses have got a lot of damage so there's a lot of rain that's coming in. And as the rain keeps pouring down throughout the course of the day from last night, what they're saying is they would like a warm meal in their bellies. And they're, they're saying they understand that it is going to take a while for the water tankers to be set up and for the electricity to be set up. But they're calling on provincial government to set up stations for them to have the most basic necessities, such as access to bread, access to soup, access to blankets. Some people don't even have shoes. Some people don't even have jackets. Um, provincial government has been telling us all the things they're going to be doing, but what community members on the ground are saying, enough talk, action is needed now. Set up stations in different parts of the communities where people can actually go there. They can spread the word throughout communities. They can be able to access uh, a warm meal for breakfast a warm meal for lunch, a warm meal for the evening, a blanket to be able to cover themselves uh, overnight. I mean, the rain that you're seeing now, it was a light drizzle earlier in the morning from about 6 o'clock, but it has progressively gotten worse. You can start seeing... Um, you can start seeing evidence of water pooling again around uh, the areas. It is a cold, wet, miserable day. And they're saying that they understand that they are convoys. They understand that they are provincial, um, high-ranking provincial delegates that are convoying, that are going to meet families. And it is important. It is an important show of force. But what they want is actual tangible stations that they can physically go to, to go and get even the most basic of items, legal. You speak about, you know, contingency plans that are being assessed and being put in place as you, you, we await the, the ultimate assessment of what the damages look like. And I wonder, in terms of housing and accommodation, I mean, what's uh, transpired on that end, particularly for those who've been less, left destitute? You've spoken about, you know, needing some of the more basic um, services, including um, blankets and warm meals, etc. But as you say, the rain continues to come down. What have you heard on the ground in terms of that? And also in terms of day-to-day -day operations, schooling, church, it is the long Easter weekend as well. What do we understand, you know, with regards to that? How is life slowly beginning to resume, if at all, as we're speaking? Yes. 
it's been an absolutely miserable uh, Easter weekend for a lot of the communities here. And life has basically come to a standstill because schools have been closed, communities have been affected because roads have been blocked off, there's no access to the roads, because some of the road networks collapsed uh, during the course of the week as a result of the, fl- of the flooding. But from last night, because the rain has been uh, pouring down, we're starting to see the mud pool again. We're starting to see the roads getting uh, flooded again. We're starting to see um, access routes being problematic yet again. So life has really come to a, a standstill right now for these community members as they try to put together the pieces of their lives around the issue of where people are sleeping. Earlier when we were, um, uh, uh, when we were at a, a community down uh, by Marion Hill, um, one of the community members said that those who have, whose house structures are still standing are accommodating some of the other community members whose houses were completely washed away and completely flooded. And you could see the absolute devastation and worry and fear, rising panic of the community members there. They're sleeping on the floor in this weather because government has not been coming in to give them basic like blankets or even basic materials such as plastic to be able to cover the roof. There's no um, temporary bedding like a, a rollout uh, mattresses. There's nothing that has been given to these communities in the six days since the flooding other than government, provincial gov- government making assessments and making promises. We know that the president has released emergency funding. Time is now, it is time now, what the community is saying is that it is time now for provincial government to start handing out the items. It is too late to give communities bedding and food from Monday. They've spent six days, it's going to be almost seven days that they wouldn't have gotten access to food. They wouldn't have gotten access to um, some form of basic shelter. They want to see by the end of the day, they want to be able to have actual plastic sheets to cover uh, their structures. They want to be able to have basics such as blankets at the end of the day. They want to be able to go to the community center to be housed there. What we saw with the community center is empty. There's no people staying in the community centers. Instead, residents are housing each other. This, again, leads to the frustration of community members that they're saying they do understand that the funds are available. They do understand that there will be oversight uh, that, that will be put in place. We do know that the public protector released a report saying that um, from as early as next week, she's going to be sending down a group of assessors and investigators to ensure that there is transparent spending of uh, the emergency relief funds that are being released. But on the ground, what communities are saying is enough talk, action is needed. They need the most basic things. And they need, they need plastic, they need material, they need corrugated iron. They need items that will be able to give them access to put a, a, even a temporary structure over their heads over the next few days while it continues uh, to rain and while um, you know, the, the, the flood or the water level starts to increase. And that's the sense that we're getting on the ground, the sense of, of frustration where people are saying, you know what, um, government will meet us, uh, you know, halfway through there, or the government will meet us wherever it is that we're going, because 
they're taking the initiative to clean up their own roads. They're taking the initiative to try and find uh, water uh, um, sources to be able to have basic access uh, to water. And again, criticism of provincial government that so far in the past six days there's been a lot of oversight, there's been a lot of site inspections, there's been a lot of um, talk, um, and there's been a lot of um, different government um, uh, government officials saying they will do, but there has not been actual tangible results that have been seen. We have not seen any stations where there's food uh, being set up by government. We haven't seen uh, government officials handing out uh, blankets. And mm. this is exactly what communities are saying. Well, let's, let's see what, um, you know, that clarion call, as you, as you mentioned, um, uh, the needs of the people uh, based on the past six days, you know, gets to the right ears and action can be, uh, be taken. People can start walking the talk when it comes to leadership. I just also want to quickly get a perspective from your end. I mean, you've been covering the story, you've been assessing as well, um, interacting very closely with the community members. How easy has it been for you to navigate you know, perform the functions that you need to do. I mean, you speak about electricity shortages, roadblocks, amongst other things. What's your experience been like to date? What, what are the challenges you're currently facing as you bring the news of, of, of the people on the ground destitute yes. as we're speaking? Yes. You know, Lizzo, it's, it's really been quite a logistical um, a problem on the ground. Uh, you know, our colleagues in, in the KZN office um, were hemmed in for the first for the first three days. They were hemmed into their houses um, because the roads and infrastructure they couldn't get out of their houses. They couldn't access, and it was difficult for them to get to locations. And just to take a typical example of um, a story we were assigned to uh, yesterday, we were sent to um, a community in Inanda just by. Uh, the river uh, bed of Inanda where there had been a, a rockfall landslide and um, the roads there, just to be able to get access to the roads there um, excuse me, there's a car that's going past us just to be able to get access to the roads there it took us almost two and a half hours just to be able uh, to get all the way from uh, the top of Hillcrest all the way to Inanda our car ended up getting stuck, we had to get towed out of the mud I mean, these are just the logistical issues that we've been dealing with with mm. being able to move around from point A to point B, just covering stories, you know, and it, it has been a challenge, it has been frustrating, but it is so important for us to get into the areas where the people need exposure and media attention mm. the most. I mean, the community of Inanda, uh, you know, you saw adults, you saw, um, you know, elderly people sitting on on those huge boulders that had collapsed in sheer trauma saying that they have no access to water. One gentleman I spoke to said for him to go from the main road uh, to settlement it's almost a seven kilometer stretch and these are winding hills that go up and the roads are, are, are not always possible because there's debris or there's some sort of obstruction. So in terms of being able to get around logistically, just as the media crew uh, on the ground, it has been a challenge. And, uh, you know, the sense that I'm getting from community members who themselves feel like they've been held hostage for those few days, they're angsty, they're frustrated, and they just want some sort of uh, resolution. Mm -hmm.
Rosine Tombi, thank you very much for those uh, you know, developments. Um, obviously, we'll continue to monitor the story with you. You are out um, stationed there throughout the day, and uh, you'll continue to give us uh, perhaps what's transpired after the leadership in the province and the um, King Mrs. Zulu you know, goes and visited, visits the area. They are in touch with the residents to see how they can actually translate the needs and uh, cater to their needs as well. Thank you very much for your time. Nozin Tombi Mia is our reporter uh, coming to live from Marion Hill, again updating on what's transpired in KwaZulu-Natal after the floods have caused uh, have havoc and devastation within that province. Again, a developing story we'll continue to monitor as it unfolds. Let's take a quick ad break. We'll continue with more news and updates on the other side. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is the Week in Review with myself, Diesel Wilson. Disaster management teams are on high alert for further floods as more rain resumes this weekend. Authorities have urged people to move away from low-lying areas as the death toll from floods in KwaZulu-Natal now stands at 395. Several government ministers navigated through the length and breadth of the province yesterday following the destructive heavy rains over the past few days. Communities still reeling from the effects of the raging floods and those mostly affected informal settlement dwellers, especially those located near rivers and the ones staying in mud houses like this family. The respite gave hope but it seems it won't last with warnings of further heavy rains but plans are afoot to address their challenges. We have actually calculated, when we're calculating all that we have quantified, we're sitting at 1.8 billion that is needed to be able to do uh, interventions. Reprioritization has been, is currently being finalized of about 1, 1 billion to KwaZulu-Natal. This will provide 4,000 temporary shelters. This is the people that we are talking about who are currently displaced. Some of them are in the halls that are needing accommodation. Water challenges are also immense. Infrastructure and treatment plans have been hugely affected, but people need water. There are four teams. Uh, uh, the first team will deal with the uh, management of uh, tankered water, which is our first priority in terms of providing water. We realize that uh, an hour or a day with people having no water uh, it can be a war. Mtunu says tankers will be made available to ensure that people access water. Another plea is that of fixing the road network. Honorable Minister, you know that um, you, have, um, you flew around and you saw uh, what is happening. So all our economic linkages, uh, those infrastructure uh, bridges and the roads are severely damaged. So they need uh, urgent attention. We need um, 5.7 billion rands. The actual cost uh, will be determined once the detailed estimation has been completed. The National Department of Transport, uh, through the PRMG, will support the province over the period of three years to address the current disaster it is facing with added financial resources. The provincial government quantified the overall damage, which it believes will run into billions of friends. Tabom Tweni, SABC News, KZN. 
Well, motorists in Durban are rushing to fill up their vehicles following reports that Durban was experiencing a fuel shortage. The shortage is as a result of key routes having been destroyed by the floods preventing the delivery of fuel. Some stations had to turn motorists around after their browsers dried up. Panic-stricken motorists rushed to fill their vehicles. Most of the affected stations belong to Shell. This is a result of transport routes having been destroyed by the floods. It's believed that some stations were limiting the amount to be filled by motorists. This station in Umslanga in Durban opened late after delaying the fuel delivery. Some motorists say they had to drive around for hours looking to fill up their vehicles. Yesterday we couldn't fill up at some petrol stations. You find that only a single bowser is operational. They're also limiting us to a fill up of 300 rand. I live in the area and uh, we've been driving around last night looking for fuel as well and the most garages were just out of fuel, people were panicking. Um, but luckily we've got some uh, colleagues in the area who advised us there was fuel that came through this morning. So yeah, we, we, we're also a bit concerned about what's going on. Now I went to Picampay, there is no petrol there. I have to come a little bit far. How can we manage? What is happening in this country, the best country I ever seen in the world? What happened? Taxi drivers say the shortage will negatively impact their business. We are really concerned, especially about the survival of our business. As you know, we have just come out of COVID-19. Now the bad weather condition has taken us a few steps back. The damage left by the floods has caused a fuel shortage. As we speak, many people have reported that they are unable to get fuel. We urge the government to intervene to save the economy of the country. By the afternoon, there was some relief for motorists. The Port Authority was able to open an alternative route from the harbour to allow the transportation of essential goods such as food, fuel and pharmaceutical products. Bungani Kema, SAPC News, Deppen. Well, operations have resumed at Durban Harbour, which has temporarily suspended due to floods. Port authorities say much of the debris has been removed from the harbour, and they say they've also managed to open an alternative route between Behe Container Terminal and the port to allow for the transportation of essential goods such as food, fuel, and other essential items. About 1,300 trucks have entered Durban Harbour each day. Yesterday, we were able to move to one ship which we had planned to move. So we close to where we were before the storm. We left with another 30% which we should then clear in the next few days. Again, I hope that this rain that is threatening to come is not going to bring more debris. That will then set us back. But really, the whole interest was to keep the port safe, our employees safe, community safe, but also to make sure that they do get those essential supplies. All right, let's take a quick ad break. We'll continue with the Week in Review on the other side. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. This is the Week in Review. More stories at the Sawab where many people lose their lives on our roads, especially during the long holiday breaks like East in South Africa. Making sufficient provision for life cover will ensure that your dependents have sufficient money to survive. But you need to decide how much life cover you need and how it should be distributed to avoid a situation where your assets are sold to settle your debts. Take a look. 
the holiday season is upon us, and although this is a time to be jubilant, the unexpected predicament such as death can also occur. Having enough life cover will enable your family to settle your standing debt to relieve pressure of them. Your current lifestyle and monthly expenses on your family will give you an idea of how much life cover you need. And if you have school-going children, then it is ideal to increase your life cover to ensure that they have enough money for education. What a bread winner might feel is that he or she would like to leave enough for the rest of the family to replace their lost salary. So let's make an example. Let's say someone earns 10,000 rand per month. If they want to ensure there's enough for the family to have that 10,000 rand for the next 30 years, they need life cover of 2.4 million rand. And then thirdly, on top of that, um, someone might want to add other wishes, like there must be enough for the family to buy a car or to fund tertiary education for the children or to leave a cash amount. So all these things will then be added together to determine what's suitable for that family. Even if you pass away, there's still an obligation to pay off your debt and estate duty. And if your estate is insolvent, your valuable assets might be sold to settle your debt. Consumers are urged to always assess how much life cover they have and whether it is enough to pay off outstanding debt. Always remember, when you die, your debts don't follow you to the grave. Unfortunately, they follow your loved ones. So to protect your loved ones and to leave them with some legacy, make sure you have a life cover to protect them, to ensure that your estate is liquid and that there's enough uh, value in your deceased estate to distribute to your loved ones. Seeding your life cover to your estate and your creditors might be a better option rather than only nominating beneficiaries. Your executor will be able to use the money to pay off your debt. But if the estate is insolvent, the executor might be forced to sell your assets to settle your standing debt. Life cover does not form part of your estate and your beneficiaries are under no obligation to pay off your debt. Your life cover as well as your pension fund benefits do not form part of your estate, especially when, as far as your life cover, especially when there, there are beneficiaries nominated there. So you have an option is either to seed uh, some of your life cover uh, towards uh, your lender when you have a mortgage, or you could actually rather nominate a beneficiary. But if you have a will that says a particular family member, whether it's a, it's a, it's a spouse or, 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 or your dependents, if you leave them with a house, you can also give them guidance that, you know, through your will, that they can use the life cover to actually settle the bond directly. Because the other thing is with uh, money coming into your estate, the value of your estate will also determine the, the, the amount of tax that you pay on, on your life cover. Because when you die, you are considered to be on your way to SARS. So SARS takes its portion first, and then followed by secured lending, uh, and, then, and then all other debts. And then once all the creditors are settled, whatever is left can be distributed to, to the family. Having a will is one way of ensuring that your assets are distributed according to your wishes. If you die without a will, the law of interstate succession rule will apply, which means that your assets might not be distributed the way you want to. You can also utilize the will to nominate a guardian for your minor children. A will is very important to make sure that 
your wishes are carried out upon your passing. If you pass away without a valid will, the interstate succession rules will apply, which means that your assets might not be distributed as you wished. And especially with minor kids under the age of 18, this is very important because the will is then a great tool to make sure that they will be taken care of. That's the place where you nominate your guardian and you also decide how your assets will be managed on their behalf as long as they are still minors and not legally allowed to receive that cash in their personal names. Your secured debt will be prioritized when your estate is being winded up. And if your estate is insolvent, your house could be sold to pay off your loan, and this could put even more pressure on your surviving dependents. Naledi Matlapeng, SABC News, Johannesburg. In other news, the Maikeng local municipality in northwest says investigations to identify the cause of the fire that ravaged six shops in the Maikeng CBD are currently underway. The fire started in the early hours of the morning on Friday and was extinguished after several hours. But the incident comes just two years after several shops in a shopping complex across the same road were gutted by fire due to illegal connection of electricity. Residents of Mahikeng woke up to scenes of smoke and fire as six shops in the CBD were burning. Fire and Rescue Services personnel extinguished the fire after several hours. The cause, however, is not yet known. Harun Variava owns four of the six affected shops. It's devastating. It's a shock. Uh, I never expected something to be like this. I was here yesterday checking up on all the tenants if everything was all right and they were fine. In 2020, some shops in a shopping complex across the road were also engulfed in flames. The cause of the fire, illegal connection of electricity. The mayor of Mahikeng local municipality, Sebison Peso, says if the cause of the fire is non-compliance with occupational health and safety standards, there will be serious repercussions. We just went through the shops and to check if they are really compliant, the connections of the wiring, and we were not impressed really. If we find the same things happening again, these shops have to be closed until the owners of these shops are compliant uh, with uh, the rules and regulations of our government. Meanwhile, residents of Mahikeng say the fire incidents at shops in the CBD are concerning. We are not ha happy the way the shops have been structured and time to time we are going to see fire coming because our shop has been re uh, town it has been reduced into small shops. We cannot enter that site and then now the clients are waiting for us. We cannot render the service to our clients. It is not clear how long the investigations will take to identify the cause of the fire and to quantify the damage and losses. Silwane Khachau, SABC News, Mahigeng. Well, the KAT Civils Company, appointed by the Free State Department of Roads and Transport, intends to write to National Treasury to ask for intervention. The company and the department have been at loggerheads over contract disputes where the KAT Civils contract was terminated by the department after it was found to be irregular by an Auditor General's report. The Auditor General recommended that the company's contract be terminated and payments be discontinued. The legal battle between the Provincial Roads and Transport Department and CAT Civils is far from over. The company is fighting for what it says it is entitled to. In 2019, CAT Civils entered into an agreement with the department to fix some roads in the province. 
But there were internal disagreements between the company and the department. The company approached the court to seek clarity after it had exhausted all internal avenues. Added to that, the department appointed new contractors while the legal matter with CAT civils was still pending. CAT civils demanded that the department suspend new contractors on the basis that it was in contact of court. Meanwhile, the EFF has written to the Office of the Public Protector to investigate alleged corruption relating to the new contractors. It's alleged that an advance payment of more than 180 million rands has been made to the contractors without service being rendered. One of the rules involved is between Webinar and Bloemfontein. Uh, 180 million is paid to service providers in the province without them providing services. So we are calling on the Premier because yesterday she made a commitment that she's going to act on corruption. Uh, we want her to act on this uh, acting HOD who's confusing his pairs with a public pairs. So one day I had to act decisively on the HOD. The Minister of Transport, Fikile Mbalula, says 900 million rand has been allocated for roads infrastructure in the province. We allocate money to the province uh, to maintain the roads uh, uh, and to maintain the roads and to build new roads. Roads must be maintained all the time. The R30 road outside Allen Ridge in the Free State has become a death trap. Many people have lost their lives in accidents on the road since January. Motorists have been asking for intervention. We can't do anything. If I want to go to Frankfurt, I have to wait for the taxi. And here is a small town. So we find out that we wait for one hour waiting for the transport. So it's very bad. Is very bad for the community and the businesses. The situation is scary because we don't know how bad the situation is underneath the road. I think it's a temporary measure. They have to put those speed humps because the signs are there, but people are just driving through. The Department of Transport has denied allegations of 180 million rand advance payment. I don't want to comment much until I get to my management to give me uh, the, the real facts of the advancement payment to the contractors who have not yet started work, of which I don't think it's supposed to work that way. But uh, I'll get the facts and then I still uh, have to account for that at the later stage. Meanwhile, there are still many incomplete roads projects that remain a nightmare to road users. Apumelele Mjalane, SABC News, Bloemfontein. Well, the Rand Easter show is back in this year's events calendar after two years of absence due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The festival is one of Johannesburg's longest standing Easter traditions, but this time it only takes place for a few days until Monday. A fun-filled day for these families. My experience was great so far and I liked all the rides. I tried all different rides and it was really fun. My experience has been extraordinary with my family, so I consider you come back next year and they'll be open for the whole week. We went on some of the rides. So far, so good. The food is smelling very nice as well, I must say. The rain show 
comes at a time when the government has just ended the national state of disaster and easing some of the COVID-19 regulations. We've been really happy with the turnout. People have come. That tells me people are feeling safe with the fact that we are following the COVID rules and COVID protocol. And then we're doing that here at the ranch show. We've been ensuring that people who are in attendance have either got their vaccination certificate or they have a negative test. The SNDF is again part of the exhibitions, displaying their capabilities and services for the citizens. No state displays everything it has. We display what we need to display. I say the purpose is to reassure you that we are there, your guardians. The return of the festival has also created an opportunity for the province to reintroduce the destination housing tourism. This following a relaxation in travel restrictions across various borders. Habit Memela, SABC News, Nazrek. Welcome back. In other news, the Judicial Service Commission has been busy interviewing candidates for appointments, including the top position in the judiciary. But it's the handling of the interviews for the position of the next Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court ignited controversy and later calls for politicians to be removed from the body. Mercedes Besant looks at the composition of the JSC and Valbus report. The JSE was established in terms of the Constitution. One of its responsibilities is to interview candidates for judicial appointments and also to hold judges accountable in terms of their conduct. It consists of 23 commissioners and a maximum of 25 chaired by the Chief Justice. The JSE is made up of lawyers, politicians and judges and there are 23 members of the Judicial Service Commission. When the JSC sits to decide on the appointments of um, high court judges from the different provinces, it sits with two extra members, which is the Premier of the province and the Judge President of that province. After interviewing a candidate, the JSC deliberates behind closed doors about the candidate's suitability. The way it makes a decision on who ultimately becomes a, a judge is through uh, debate and consensus. When the JC is not able to come to a consensus, they then decide on a vote. The majority of the members um, must vote and the majority of the members um, who vote uh, in one direction will constitute the decision of the JSC. That means for appointments to be made, the candidate must have gotten at least 50% plus one of its members. While the Constitution gives the JSC the final word on the appointment of judges, only the President has the final say on the appointment of judges of the Constitutional Court, the Chief Justice, Deputy Chief Justice, as well as the President of the Supreme Court of Appeal and Deputy President of the SEA. The number of votes required for the appointment of judges and constitutional court justices differ. So when um, the decision of the high court, for example, are being made, the JSC sits with 25 members and at least 13 of the members of the JSC must vote for that candidate, uh, uh, for, for that candidate to be appointed. 
Now, for the Constitutional Court, because it doesn't sit with the two extra members, there are only 23 members of the JSC. That means a candidate for the Constitutional Court needs at least 12 votes. There have been calls for the JSC to make its deliberations public. Ordinarily, the deliberations of the JSC are private. That means they cannot be disclosed to the public. The only time that the JSC deliberations can be disclosed is if a decision of the JSC is taken to court on judicial review, and through that judicial review process, the JSC is required to disclose the reasons and the documents that related to the decision. And that means that the transcripts of the deliberations are also attached to the court record, and because uh, uh, court records are public documents, that, that is how the deliberations of the JSC can be made public. This was um, done because of the Constitutional Court's judgment in the Helen Sussman Foundation case. Some have also questioned the involvement of politicians in the JSC. And this is what happens, ACG. Yes. CJ Mukwe Mukwe writes to them. Mm. They don't respond. Mm. They wait for him to go. Mm. Now they know that mm. CJ is gone. Mm. Their process, you are now acting. Mm. We are going to look for mm. CJ. Then they start responding to Mukwe Mukwe's no, no, no. letter during your time. It's a blue lie, uh, what uh, Commissioner Mukwe. No, but don't say I'm lying. What do you no, mean I'm lying? It's a lie. No, it's don't say lie. I'm lying. That is no, disrespectful. No, to say I'm lying is disrespectful. No, it's If you are going to allow him to say no, I'm, it's I'm lying, it's wrong. The Constitution requires the inclusion of 10 members of Parliament to sit on the Judicial Service Commission. Four are delegates from the NCOP, six are from the National Assembly, of which three must be from the opposition benches. Judge, you are homophobic. It's a statement I want to make unequivocally. You are homophobic and in South Africa in 2022 is just unbelievable for the record. One analyst says what transpired during the interview process of judges and chief justice is a reflection of South African politics. My view here is that uh, what we have seen in South Africa recently during the appointments that have been made by the Judicial Service Commission the differences that have come out, the partisanship that has been expressed by different political uh, uh, leaders who were represented there. What we have seen actually shows that there is conflict in South Africa's society, politically speaking. Therefore, the processes, as we have seen in the Judicial Service Commission, it is a reflection of the state of politics in South Africa. Matekha has defended the participation of politicians in the process of appointing judges. And people are asking, what should we do? Should we be removing politicians from participating? I mean, if our politics does not enjoy consensus and if our politics is not grounded on common values, should we then say politicians should not participate in the judicial processes? But the answer is no. I do think that politicians should continue to be allowed to participate in the Judicial Service Commission as it is. I think, however, that different rules of engagement will have to be in place. And those different rules of engagement should not be aimed at sanitizing the process of appointing judges. I do think that uh, our democracy 
should mature in a way that we can define these processes, but our differences should be grounded on the pursuit of common values for South Africa. The next key position to be filled in the judiciary is that of the Deputy Chief Justice, vacated by Raymond Zondo when he ascended to the position of Chief Justice. Supreme Court of Appeal President Mandi Samaya has been nominated by President Cyril Ramaphosa for the deputy position and leaders of parties in the National Assembly have been given 10 days to comment on her nomination. Mercedes Besend, SABC News, Parliament. All right, on to the Middle East now, where Palestinians have clashed with Israeli security forces at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque in Israel. Videos purporting to be from witnesses show chaotic scenes inside the mosque where stun grenades and tear gas were allegedly fired at Palestinian protesters inside the mosque. Israeli police say that three of the officers were injured in the clashes and uh, tensions this year have been heightened in the part by in part rather by Ramadan coinciding with the Jewish celebration of Passover. Al-Aqsa is the third holy site in Islam and also revered by Jews as the location of two ancient temples. In a statement, Israeli police say they have moved into the mosque to disperse a crowd of Palestinians who have been throwing firecrackers and stones. Hundreds of Palestinians were detained. Right, that's where we're going to leave it for you today. Do have a safe, warm uh, day. Uh, Obviously, we'll be back tomorrow for a look at what we can expect on the week ahead. But for myself, Viva Wolfson and the team, until tomorrow, it is goodbye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was an SABC report, uh, Week in Review. And, of course, um, it dealt with a number of issues, including uh, the humanitarian crisis taking place now in KwaZulu-Natal around Durban in the Republic of South Africa, uh, something that is not being covered at all uh, in the United States uh, corporate or government-controlled media. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with our final segment uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast.
tomorrow tonight I could be on the hill. I just want you to know, baby, the way I feel. I love and I love the life we live. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the voice of McKinley Morganfield, better known as Muddy Waters. I live the life I love, and I love the life I live. And uh, we're here at the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, today is uh, Saturday, uh, April the 17th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to another edition of our program. Right now, we want to bring you our concluding segment, uh, which is, of course, a briefing uh, from uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, the Director General, uh, Dr. John N. Kangason, uh has uh, data on uh, many aspects of uh, public health across the African continent. And uh, we're going to, of course, hear from him uh, very shortly. And are uh, you listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast? Hello and uh, good afternoon. Oh, good morning or good evening, depending on where you are joining us from. And uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, for this uh, press briefing of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and uh, Prevention. My name is Wayne Musabayana. I'm Head of Communication at the African Union Commission. Let me start by just uh, saying how glad we are to be back with you after a two-week break. And uh, that was occasioned by a number of issues. The first one was a very important board meeting of the Africa CDC that was determining the way forward for this very important agency of the African Union. Um, Then Dr. John had to go on a short break. And um, then also today, Dr. John was engaged with the Permanent Representative Committee, which is the grouping of uh, ambassadors of the member states of the African Union. Uh, They are one of the most important structures of the African Union, and so they called him to go and attend a meeting and explain some issues to them, and hence the delay today. So our sincere apologies for those um, uh, breaks, but uh, we are really happy that you are with us and hoping that uh, we will be able to continue on a weekly basis uh, as before. So... As usual, we will start with a briefing from the director of the Africa CDC, who is Dr. John Nkengasong, and he's already on standby for that. After his briefing, we will then go into our question and answer section, and the WhatsApp number that you can use is the plus 251-94-550-2310. That's a plus 251-94. Five five zero two three one zero. Alternatively, you can come through live or write down your questions on the question and answer section, and we'll pick them up and give them to Dr. John. All right. So thank you. Very much. 
let me now hand you over to the Africa CDC Director, Dr. John Minkenga Song. It's over to you. Uh, thank you, Wayne, and uh, colleagues. It's a pleasure to be back uh, after two weeks of a break. As uh, Wayne explained, we, as you all uh, know, uh, during the summit, that is the AU summit in February, the head of states decided to move, elevate the status of Africa CDC, and the governing board was discussing ways forward. I mean, uh, um, how do we carry that forward about uh, two weeks ago? And I'd have to take a, 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 a break the week after. So uh, we are back and we'll continue to uh, maintain our schedule as uh, before. So today I will do, uh, as usual, three things. I will look at the review for you, the epidemiological situation of COVID on the continent, then discuss uh, the vaccination issues and uh, the progress. And then uh, I would like to also conclude by just um, bringing you up to date on the vaccine manufacturing in Africa. So first of all, let's start with the epidemiology situation. As of today, April 14, uh, the continent has, is reporting a total of 11.3 million cases of uh, COVID uh, uh, across the continent. Of that number, about 251,000 uh, people have died, unfortunately. <clears throat> if you look at the, 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 the dynamics there across the continent, and we'll go to that, but before we touch on that, let me first of all comment on the, the variants. As we speak, for the eight countries uh, out of the 55 member states are reporting or have reported the Omicron variant, and uh, 16 member states are now reporting the BA. Uh, to sublineage of the Omicron uh, variant. That includes Algeria, Botswana, DR Congo, Ethiopia, Kenya, uh, Malawi, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, Nigeria, Rwanda, Senegal, South Africa, South Sudan, Tunisia, and, and Zambia. We know that the uh, pandemic is now uh, uh, dominated by uh, this lineage of the, 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 the Omicron variant. So let's discuss and review the trends over the last week and then uh, four weeks. Uh, between last week and this week, we, as a continent, have, have reported about 20,000 new cases. So we continue to see a decrease of the seven days moving average across the continent. <clears throat> if we now look at the number of deaths uh, on a continent of 1.2, 1.3 billion people, uh, we have uh, we were reported uh, uh, a total of uh, 319 deaths. 319 deaths. That represents a 14% decrease over the last week. If we now look at the four weeks, that is the period between 11th of March and 10th of April, uh, we, as the continent, recorded uh, a decrease of new cases in the range of 16% average decrease. And uh, in terms of death during that same period, uh, there was an overall 2% average decrease in number of deaths during that uh, same period. The testing has decreased on the continent, and I'll add, unfortunately so, and we should not uh, be uh, less vigilant, which cannot be complacent. Testing is the cornerstone for us to uh, continue to fight this pandemic. So I urge all member states to increase rather than decrease the testing. 
uh, when you are at a low transmission season, that is why you really test a lot so that you pick the spots, the hot spots, and you deal with it uh, uh, effectively there. So again, um, my appeal is that we do not relent on testing uh, across the, the continent. <clears throat> In order to uh, now on to vaccines, um, we know that, uh, and we'll discuss this uh, shortly, that as a continent, uh, we receive uh, about 770 million doses of vaccines across 54 member states. And of that number, 514 million COVID-19 vaccine doses have been administered, which represents a 66.7% of the uh, total supply. The coverage, that is the number of people fully vaccinated, stands at 16.2%, 16.2% fully vaccinated. Uh, Ten member states have vaccinated in excess of 35%, and they include Seychelles with 81%, Mauritius 76%, Rwanda 63%, Morocco uh, 63%, Kevet 55%, Botswana 54%, Tunisia 53%, Mozambique 43%, South Tome and Principe 40%, and Lesotho 36%. Now, in order to uh, continue to improve our vaccine uptake and uh, following the recommendation of our COVID champion, President Cyril Ramaphosa, in uh, February during the summit, he specifically asked us to be innovative. And one of those innovations is that uh, we launched the Bingwa initiative on April 7, which is just last week. And the Bingwa is really a program that targets young Africans, um, recognizing that 65% of the population of the continent is less than 25 years old. And if we have to get to 70%, we must make these young youngsters uh, to be part of the, the program. They must be champions. So Bingwa essentially in Swahili means champion. So it was a very successful program that was launched in collaboration with uh, UNICEF, uh, WHO Regional Director for Africa, Dr. Chidi Moeti was present, uh, the MasterCard Foundation, uh, which is one of our major partners, was uh, present, uh, the, uh, the German Corporation was also present. We really hope that uh, in the coming days and weeks, these youth youngsters will continue to be important actors in, in the fight against uh, COVID-19 on the continent, specifically encouraging young people and their communities to uptake vaccines. We'll keep you uh, informed and updated as we make progress. Uh, the AVAD mechanism, uh, which is one of the prides of Africa, has now delivered about 45.5 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The Johnson & Johnson vaccines, as we all know, are the single-dose vaccines. So if you translate that into a double-dose vaccine, it would actually be equivalent of close to uh, in excess of 90 million uh, vaccines delivered in 35 countries. But we ask that all member states that have placed their orders through the Afri-Exim Bank should go ahead and, and collect their deliveries because those vaccines are available. Uh, about 34 million are in storage and they're waiting for countries to, to accept those, uh, to, to declare their intention to get those vaccines delivered. Let me just conclude my briefing, as I indicated earlier, by highlighting the situation of vaccine production on the continent. You all recall that 
on uh, April 12 and 13 of 2021, we launched the Partnership of Vaccine Manufacturing, abbreviated PABM, and that became a framework for um, uh, vaccine manufacturing in Africa to get to uh, the, the, the the, the target that the continent agreed on that uh, within the next 20 years, at least 60% of, of, of vaccines should be produced on the continent of Africa uh, to guarantee Africa's health sovereignty, uh, of course, including uh, other components like diagnostics, personal protective equipment, and, and therapeutics. Um, we are very pleased that uh, so many countries are now engaged. I just came out from the briefing with uh, the permanent representatives of the ambassadors, and Algeria actually has two <clears throat> manufacturing plants going on. Their target is to get to 60 million doses at the end of the year manufacturing. They are actually supporting other countries like Mali, Tunisia, and uh, uh, I believe Niger, they, they mentioned, uh, with uh, vaccines that they, are pro they, they produce themselves, uh, Egypt, uh, Morocco, Senegal, Ghana, um, Kenya, Rwanda, of course, South Africa have all engaged in the journey to produce vaccines on, on the continent, which is very, very uh, much welcome. If we look back from where we are coming from 1% vaccine manufacturing to uh, where we are with this number of countries manufacturing, it is extremely pleasing that truly the new public health order that we are calling for uh, which resides on four pillars, manufacturing of health security commodities, strengthening institutions, including the African Medicine Agency, AMA, uh, deepening up the workforce on the continent, and uh, working with uh, the private sector and partners in a respectable, action-oriented manner are all taking off, I mean, and moving forward. In the coming days, we are going to some, have um, a, 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 a summit. On, on the new public health order. But let me pause here and say that uh, despite this progress, I am deeply concerned that um, it, uh, of the situation that is happening as we speak in South Africa with Aspen. You know that um, the Aspen is, uh, has been licensed since December to produce uh, the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, and so far they have received no orders. And the, the risk is very, very high that uh, that company may actually stop producing the Johnson & the, 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 the Johnson vaccines. So I think this is an appeal to the international community and to the entire continent that we must rally uh, our efforts and support the, that uh, uh, vaccine-producing company in Africa, which is already doing the job. There's no point talking about vaccine, the need for global health security, uh, to invest in original capacity to produce diagnostic vaccines and therapeutics. If uh, countries and pharmaceutical companies begin to produce those and they are not purchased, I think that the, the argument that uh, Africa is not uh, taking up enough vaccines, I, I don't think is valid. Uh, we have seen how uh, when other parts of the world were challenged with uptake of vaccines, how other incentives, packages of incentives were put together to support the uptake of, of, of vaccines. I think we should do everything possible to maintain our public health hat on, to continue to uh, mobilize the population to uptake the vaccine, but very importantly, to be very deliberate that we want to support African manufacturing. Regional manufacturing of vaccines is 
an indisputable pathway to guaranteeing our collective health security or global health security. There's no way we can circumvent that. We've lived through this crisis for two years. We've seen how uh, disruptive it can be in our own trusting relationship with the, the, the South and the North when vaccines are available only in some parts of the world. So it has to be a very deliberate effort to supporting uh, the, the shaping the market so that uh, vaccines produced in Africa must be purchased uh, adequately so that we maintain the vaccine manufacturing capacity. Vaccines are not like drugs where you can just produce and put them on the shelves. Vaccines have always traditionally been purchased by, by aggregating the, those orders and then pre-financing it, like structures like Gavi, the COVAX, the Act Accelerator, uh, must be ready to support the continent to buy these vaccines so that we do not run into uh, um, a scenario, a, a, a very uncomfortable uh, scenario where uh, it will undermine completely all our collective efforts to strengthen our collective health security. I just wanted to make that point because it's so pertinent at this point. So thank you, Wayne, and over to you. I look forward to answering any further questions. Thank you very much, John. Indeed, that's a very, very important point that you um, mentioned uh, at the end there. Now, before we go into our question and answer section, let me just remind colleagues of the WhatsApp number that you can use, and it is plus 251 We can also take your questions live as well as through the question and answer platform. Now, John, the very first question that we have is uh, very much uh, related to the last point that you raised, and it is coming from Kerry Kalinan, who is with the Health Policy Watch. Kerry says, yesterday, the IFPMA Director General said the Africa CDC was stopping and cancelling vaccine orders, as many of the member states in Africa lack the capacity to roll out vaccinations. What is the status with the orders and which countries are struggling to roll out their vaccination campaigns? So let me first of all start by correcting that. The Africa CDC has not asked that there should be cancellation of any vaccine orders. I think uh, uh, we I corrected this a long time ago when Politico wrote that article saying we asking for polls to vaccine. And I've since written in the New York Times to clarify this. What I said clearly is that we should coordinate our vaccine delivery efforts so that uh, you, you don't supply the continent with vaccines all at the same time in the first quarter, and that run the risk of expiration. And we've seen that happening. Just two weeks ago, Kenya had to dispose about 800,000 doses of vaccines, and other countries are doing similarly there. That is the warning that I gave that it must be coordinated. And we have to be sure that the narrative is right, that it is not because some parts of the world have not finished vaccinating and they have excess that they donate in Africa, that Africa will be ready to use all those vaccines at the same time. It must be coordinated. It must be done as a program. And we are not just uh, uh, discussing this and arguing for this. We have convened a series of meetings, including just last month, a meeting with ministers of health, as well as partners to say, hey, we must coordinate our efforts. 
This is a, an appeal, a call to action by President Ramaphosa, who is uh, the COVID champion, and when he made his report in front of all head of states in February, calling for stronger coordination of our efforts so that we can continue to vaccinate uh, uh, appropriately there. Delivery is important. I really like to see the same efforts that we've put in in ensuring that vaccines are now available. We turn that effort as well into the delivery. Delivery from, uh, of vaccines from the, the airports to the arms is key. Countries need transport mechanisms, storage facilities, because if you send any country in Africa millions of doses of vaccines, you need storage. Where is that storage there? We have to build efforts there and support them to do that. We, have to, we need a search capacity of, of, of workforce okay, to do that. Countries uh, uh, need to be supported there. We need to take, move the vaccine to the last mile. We need accessories, okay, accessories, needle syringes, and others that will be required. So that's what we're saying. So again, just to say that no one at Africa CDC, and not me, have said that we should cancel the vaccination. I've argued for and called for a coordinated approach so that vaccines do not arrive all at the same time. Even if you're a developed country and vaccines suddenly show up on their, their borders in, in, in abundance, you run the risk of not using those vaccines uh, appropriately. I just wanted that point to be uh, absolutely clear. All right. Thank you, John. Um, colleagues, I think Dr. John there is really making a plea for us to communicate on this issue, that the Africa CDC is not asking for cancellation of the delivery of uh, vaccines to the African continent, but more for a coordinated approach. So thank you very much. Uh, let's move on to the next question, which is coming from Lawrence Caramel. And uh, Lawrence is with uh, Lamond. He says, do you consider it as still realistic to maintain the 60% goal for vaccination? And if so, when do you think it will be achieved? Uh, very, very good question uh, uh, from a colleague from Lamond. Uh, I, I think we should continue to strive to get to 70% of the, uh, as WHO have, have stated. Uh, not even, remember, early on in this pandemic, the Africa's Union had endorsed a 60% position. At that point, uh, the, 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 the narrative was that 20% would be enough. I think we use facts and science to determine 60%. WHO has come, since come forward and say 70%. And, um, and others have said the same thing. We should try to get to the, that point. We should not be deceived that because we are in a low transmission season uh, in Africa and across the world that we will not uh, see the, the pandemic uh, 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 rebound. We have seen this scenario over and over. I was just analyzing our own data. And when I briefed uh, just a few minutes ago, the Permanent Representative uh, uh, Council of Ambassadors at the African Union, and I showed them very consistently that when we, the low transmission season usually lasts between two months and three months, and we've seen this four times, okay, where we go down into the low transmission season and then it comes back up. So it doesn't mean the virus is gone. We, how are we going to rebound? I don't know, because there's a lot of uh, exposure now in the, communi in the community, uh, coupled with the, uh, the vaccination rate of 16%. Maybe it will offer some protection uh, in, the, in the community, what we call a population immunity. I don't know. But... The short answer to your question is yes. Let's put that as a programmatic goal and continue to support countries to get to that level so that the shared optimism that we are seeing across the world should be enjoyed across the world uh, completely and not just some parts of the world. 
Thank you, John. Judith Akolo is writing from the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation in Nairobi. My question is, what will it take to get the member states to begin to look at vaccination as part of prevention of diseases as opposed to curating countries that seem to love to invest in? So I think that is, Judith, a very good public health question. I think um, in my 30 years and above in public health, uh, we all know that um, there is uh, usually, uh, unfortunately so, the, the most impactful interventions are your preventions, and vaccines are the most effective interventions that you have in, in public health. Uh, however, because vaccines are, uh, prevent, uh, you don't see the glory because when you prevent something, you don't see it. You don't see it happening. So if I take my uh, COVID vaccines and I'm not infected, I truly don't appreciate what would have happened had I not been vaccinated. So that is what I mean by uh, there is usually in public health no glory in prevention, which is very, very unfortunate. People tend to see to gravitate towards treatment because if you are sick, you have a fever, a cough, you take your treatment, you immediately, uh, after two days, you start recovery. And you, you, you actually acknowledge that more than pre- the prevention there, which is unfortunate. The most impactful interventions in, in over the history of infectious diseases are vaccines in, uh, intervention, be it in polio, measles, uh, uh, um, uh, meningitis, etc., etc. Et we see that vaccine. So, again, the continent should see scale-up of vaccination as a necessary pathway to guaranteeing the health security of the continent. And we will continue to champion this course. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Janice Q from Bloomberg. Do you have statistics on the BA4 and the BA5 variants, and how widespread are they on the continent? Yes, we do have some statistics. Let me just um, read what I, I have here. For uh, We have for the Omicron, uh, uh, B11529, uh, for the eight member states have uh, reported that variant. Then if we look at the lineage, the Omicron BA2 sub-lineage, about 16 countries have reported that variant, uh, that lineage, and they include, as I said earlier, uh, Algeria, Botswana, DR Congo, Ethiopia, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, Nigeria, Rwanda, Senegal, South Africa, South Sudan, Tunisia, and Zambia. There could be more out there, uh, but uh, these are the countries that have officially notified us of the availability of this lineage. That is the the BA2 sub-lineage. All right. uh, Thank you. Let's say hello to Paul Adepoju, who's joining us online. Paul, good afternoon or good morning. Yes, um, good morning, and uh, thanks for taking my questions. Uh, Dr. John, I, uh, you mentioned um, the reduction in COVID testing in Africa, but uh, I would like to know if we can, we can provide some data to give us uh, this trend, how, how, how the reduction is going then, um, which countries are we seeing the most, uh, the sharpest drop? Then uh, regarding Africa itself, I would like to know um, the status of uh, the regional center in Egypt. Uh, do we have an idea of when uh, it's taking off? And um, concerning the developments regarding Aspen, um, how do you see the, uh, this trend? Uh, is it being impacted by the availability 
of uh, doses that have been donated, that countries are seeing these doses for free? Or what, how is this trend different from the initial plan that the, that the facility had, especially uh, with the South African government, considering uh, this was a South Africa uh, government uh, fully supported uh, initiative? Thank you. So in terms of testing, Paul, uh, uh, um, overall, the cumulatively, the continent has conducted about 104 million tests. Again, those are official reports. Um, in terms of new tests, uh, just this week, 582,000 new tests were conducted. If you compare that uh, with the last week, uh, it was uh, uh, that represents a, a, a reduction of a nine, uh, 9% decrease because last week uh, was the, 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 that is the week before the continent had conducted 637,000 uh, tests. That Again, all of these are reported numbers. The cumulative positivity rate is around 11%, that is, uh, of people that are tested, which represents a test per case ratio of 9.2, okay, which um, is, is still uh, 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 high. So, I don't know, I don't have the, the information country by country, uh, but uh, our, in this briefing, but I'm sure that our uh, emergency operations center folks will have that information. Uh, Egypt, uh, the, the center in Egypt has not yet uh, been operationalized um, uh, because of the, the still waiting for the, um, the, they call it the hosting agreement to, to be signed. And, and I think we, are, we remain hopeful that uh, that uh, hosting agreement will at some point be signed. Now, the last two years have been very problematic for all of us because the focus has been on uh, our ability to respond to this um, terrible pandemic. So uh, we hope that uh, this year we can make progress or go back to the drawing board and see what is uh, what is hindering the, the takeoff of that and then address it accordingly. So your last point on the, the donator really impacting the equation. So again, and, and your point, Paul, I'd like to expand on that a little bit. Now, if you recall the, the trend, now memory is very short, and then we tend to uh, uh, begin to not uh, put the, the situation in the right context. When the COVID vaccines were delivered, the first COVAX vaccines were delivered on the continent around March of last year, uh, I mean, there was all, I mean, the continent was really ready for that. I mean, they were, I mean, I was at the airport receiving vaccines. People were ready to jumping up and ready to get vaccines. But then there was a shortage of vaccines. Okay, not really shortage. There was complete stop, uh, a stoppage of delivery, if you remember, because shortly after that, India imposed a ban on that. And, and, and it, it became a very big concern for the continent. That's why uh, the continent accelerated the, the AVAT mechanism to acquire its own vaccines. A continent of 1.2 billion people could not have just been waiting for the COVAX mechanism to deliver them vaccines. So that initiative, AVAT, which is a historic uh, intervention, strong leadership from President Cyril Maposa and, and other uh, chairperson Musa Faki, must always be remembered because it, was a, it came at a point of need at the Afro Exim Bank uh, uh, um, uh, allocated uh, or, uh, two, uh, $2 billion to supporting that. I like history to re always remember that. That was very important. And if vaccines had been available in a consistent manner at that time, I'm sure that we wouldn't have gotten into the, the, the situation we are today. So fast forward, 
the, uh, the Africans set up that facility and the, the, two, the 400 million doses of vaccine was secured and guaranteed by African treasuries. Okay, that we all know. I mean, I'm recording all what you know, but I'm heading to a point where uh, now that vaccination coverage uh, increased uh, tremendously in developed countries, that they started donating, uh, doing a lot of bilateral donations there. And that, of course, uh, countries started receiving those and now uh, um, we're not following through with their own uh, avad supplies. But it's a commitment, it's a legal commitment that they made with, uh, to get those vaccines when they were in need. So you just cannot walk away from those uh, things there. But having said that, it is very clear that this pandemic is not over. So we should not be discussing vaccine needs as if the pandemic is over. We truly don't know how many times we need to boost. I mean, I've received my vaccines and boosted, and I don't know if maybe in the next six months or four months I should go in for the fourth dose. Um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine continues to be one of the, uh, the, 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 the best vaccines in terms of protection over time. So it's a strong appeal to all member states to not uh, to continue to respect the uh, engagements that they had uh, to, to, have, uh, to get their vaccines. That shows self-determination, and it shows that, I mean, a, a leadership. It shows ownership of our own health security as a continent. I think we must be very proud of that moment, but follow through and make sure that vaccines that were ordered are delivered, and even take it further and make sure that we convince the population and continue to engage the communities to take up these vaccines. Thank you very much, John. Let's say hello to Lucia Blanco. And uh, Lucia is with the International Spanish News Agency. Why do you think that Aspen is not getting orders for the J&J vaccines? And who should be ordering those vaccines? Is it governments or international mechanisms like COVAX? And lastly, is the price of those vaccines competitive now? And um, she says, thanks a lot. Yeah, I think it's not, uh, why it's not thinking. It's a discussion that I'm having with uh, the leadership of, of, uh, of Aspen. And uh, I'm not the only one they are talking to. They are really, they have been very transparent with that, that they're receiving no orders. And um, that, and they are very clear that they don't want to surprise anyone that in the next coming months, if they don't receive any further orders, they will need to shut down that, uh, that facility. So, we cannot and must not allow that to happen. And we, the, the orders, as you rightly stated, should come from our international community efforts. Uh, we need expression of solidarity and international cooperation, which we've all appealed to during this crisis. We also need that African countries continue to not only wait for donations, but also commit themselves to in, in buying these vaccines because Again, it's not enough to just get two doses. We, this is a tricky virus. We don't know what the trajectory uh, of this virus holds for up, but uh, making commitments, uh, collective commitments to about so that um, that factory can continue to produce uh, the much needed Johnson & Johnson vaccines is critical. I think that, I mean, vaccines, as I said, are not like drugs where you can produce them and put on the shelves. I mean, there must be a collective mechanism. And this brings me to the international uh, uh, community. COVAX, Gavi, the Act Accelerator must all mobilize and support uh, that uh, company so that uh, they, uh, they, uh, they can sustain the, their production facilities. Otherwise, why have we been all along calling for regional manufacturing? We all, there's a global consensus that 
In order to ensure global health security, there must be regional manufacturing. Here we are, we are with a company that is producing an amazing uh, a vaccine uh, that the continent is using. is a backbone of the vaccination in Africa. Many countries in Africa actually are preferring the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but it's running a risk of, of, of shutting down that production. We cannot and must not allow that to happen. All right, uh, thank you. Judith Akolo comes back with another question. And she says, while you were talking to the PRC today, did you also impress upon them to inform the political leaders in the member states to stop getting excited about the low infection rates and uh, to make statements that, in effect, tend to stop some of the measures that were used to contain the spread of COVID-19? And she says that these kinds of messages are really uh, quite wrong, and uh, they tend to impress upon the people that uh, COVID-19 is behind us. Uh, Judith, one would uh, probably have thought that you were in the briefing today, because the briefing with the ambassadors today, because that was the centrality of, of the conversation. The centrality was about the pandemic is not over. This is only a low transmission season. Use this period to intensify it. I was very clear that we should use this period to do four things, increase vaccine uptakes, testing, surveillance, and of course, engaging our communities with the right messaging. Those are the things you do during a low transmission season as, as much as possible. We also discussed extensively the need to have a common uh, position and voice to protect the vaccine manufacturing uh, industry in Africa, which is just emerging. I mean, otherwise, before you emerge, you die. If uh, there's no collectivity around it, and, uh, and, and support for these countries that are producing uh, vaccines. So uh, I mean, one would probably think that you were in the conversations today. It was a very thorough and thoughtful conversation that I had with all the ambassadors. Thank you, John. Idris Mutetia, who is with um, China Daily. What's your take on China's zero COVID-19 strategy? Would you recommend such a strategy for Africa or should we, as a continent, learn to live with COVID-19? I think we should learn to do the things that I've in, uh, insisted we should do. Increase vaccination rates, uh, conduct surveillance as much as possible, uh, increase our testing, and, uh, and of course, uh, maintain uh, 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 public health measures. That is, of course, washing of hands, masking when you are in, in, uh, in a crowded space as much as possible. That's what I think we must be doing on, on the continent. And public health practice is, is common across uh, the, the, uh, the, the practice is common. I mean, and those principles are principles that should be valid across the board. I think um, I've been very clear on this, that the days of massive, at least for Africa, the days of massive lockdown is over. Uh, vaccination rates, are, are, are vaccines available. We should go out and get vaccinated. Uh, and we should also be, be testing as much as possible, especially decentralizing testing to community testing and self-testing is what I, I have. I have my test kits yet, and the day each day that I feel like I'm not uh, feeling well, I test myself and whatever. And the test, rapid antigen test kits are available. That's what I recommend for the continent. Thank you very much. Uh, Agostino Leita is a journalist at uh, LUSA, the Portuguese news agency. And he has quite a number of questions. So he says he'd like to ask you to explain the current situation regarding COVID-19 treatment protocols in Africa. 
where do we stand? That's the first one. Then he says, what is being done so that African laboratories can also produce the new drugs under development? That's the second one. He goes on to say, should the pandemic mitigation strategy in Africa focus primarily on treatment at a stage when variants of the disease are becoming less and less lethal? So those are the points from Agostino. No, absolutely. The treatment, uh, as you know, on the continent is still uh, the access to those drugs, the two uh, uh, important drugs, minopiravir and uh, Paxlovid, is still very limited on the continent. I think we are working very hard uh, with the two companies, as I told you earlier, uh, uh, that we're working with uh, uh, Pfizer and, and Merck uh, to finalize the, the, the MOUs, the Memorandum of Understanding. Again, it's out of our hands. Uh, these things that they are negotiated at the level of uh, the legal offices and in both parties, but I've seen progress over the last uh, com- uh, couple of weeks. Again, it doesn't stop uh, member states to have bilateral discussions. I think some of them are having a bit of the overall access to these drugs on the continent is very limited. We also um, have heard that uh, one of the companies, I can I can recall which one, was going to uh, issue license to uh, several countries to produce uh, uh, those uh, the generics, but I, I don't recall that uh, there was any African country among those uh, countries, but it's something that we continue to advocate. And very importantly, I also add to the list of things that I recommended that um, the way to uh, continue to fight this pandemic going forward is the test and treat, in addition to vaccines and surveillance. So the testing is coupled to treatment. So we, the continent has to work very hard uh, with partnership with the companies that are producing the drugs to have availability of the drugs. These drugs are so powerful and effective that uh, they, they, they really uh, 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 they don't discriminate between variants, so they're effective across the variants. So having a test and treat strategy going forward, just as we've done for HIV/AIDS, is extremely will be extremely valuable. So to the extent that if these drugs were available and uh, you have a new variant, the, the health systems would not be overwhelmed because these drugs you can administer them uh, with, uh, among healthcare workers and they it will knock up the virus regardless of the variant very quickly. So I think in some the treatment protocols, are, I, mean, I believe WHO is issuing some guidelines. Access to the continent remains very, very limited. We are working on the access issues with the, at the level of the African Union and, of course, in partnership with Pfizer and Merck. All right. Thank you, John. Lawrence Caramel has come back with a second question. Do some countries face lack of finance? to roll out their vaccination plans? Uh, of course, you, you I think yes, uh, uh, but I, I also believe that it's a collective support that uh, countries can benefit and are benefit, benefiting from. Uh, you all know that we have the, the Saving Lives, Saving Livelihood uh, uh, Initiative, which is a very strong partnership and bold partnership with the MasterCard Foundation. Countries are accessing that, I mean, the UNICEF, and COVAX uh, have some uh, uh, support. The World Bank is also supporting, and member states are putting their own resources to, towards vaccination. Is it enough? It can never be enough, because I'll outline the challenges that are required, the transportation, the logistics, the vaccination, the storage, are all key areas that countries will need to continue to need support. All right. Um... 
Let's take a second question from Paul Adepoju. Uh, yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. John, uh, on the wider lesson that uh, the COVID pandemic has brought attention to uh, something that you've continued to reiterate, which is this new public health order. Uh, from your personal perspective, uh, talking to these ambassadors and by extension, uh, leadership from across the continent, uh, are you seeing this active commitment even when uh, the attention they gave COVID at the initial stage is no longer there to still be tending towards prioritization of prevention measures over response. And um, looking at the long term, are you concerned that the gains of prioritizing prevention over control measures uh, is secure or is and is further threatened? Then a follow-up question to the Aspen development. We also see similar that potential or similar developments happening to other potential COVID vaccine, COVID vaccine production facilities being set up in different parts of the continent. Uh, would you recommend these facilities pivoting to manufacturing other vaccines that the continent has, considering the fact that donation uh, countries would always be desiring to take free vaccines? Vaccines uh, over something that they want to pay for. Why? What is your position on these facilities devoting to other vaccine needs that the country continent actually needs? No, I mean, Paul. Very good question. I mean, uh, one would also think that you were at the uh, briefing of the ambassadors this morning because I, I expanded a lot on uh, the, the need for a new public health order, which is not a slogan. I mean, the new public health order says there are four things that we must do and do it aggressively and collectively to secure the continent now to achieve its uh, uh, health security sovereignty. And I use the word sovereignty and bold and underline it. And they include the manufacturing of not just uh, uh, vaccines, but diagnostics and, and therapeutics. I think we have discussed therapeutics already. But let me comment on, on diagnostics. As we speak, on a continent of 1.3 billion people, Senegal is now producing, is only now producing the antigen test. Morocco is only now, now meaning that during this pandemic, last year they started producing. Welcome back. And uh, that was the uh, Director General of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Dr. John Nkangasone, giving a briefing on the uh, epidemiological situation in Africa, statistics related to transmissions of COVID-19 and also uh, vaccination rates and logistical issues involving uh, the manufacture and distribution of vaccines. That's going to uh, conclude our program uh, for uh, today. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at patafricannews.blogspot.com. We're closing out uh, with the uh, music of Detroit's own Kenny Burrell, the album entitled Midnight Blue. Uh, this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off. Have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 
Thank you.